This is Healthcare's Missing Logic Podcast, episode number 51. Today, our special guest is Dr. Diana Hendel. Diana is a pharmacist who has held numerous healthcare leadership roles and is the author of Responsible, a memoir. In her book and during our interview, Diana shares her experience and lessons learned as the CEO of two hospitals in Southern California following a traumatic event in which three of her coworkers and colleagues lost their lives. Don't miss this episode. Hi, healthcare leaders. I'm Tracy Christofferson. And I'm Michelle Trosett. We're your hosts for Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast, and we are so grateful you joined us today. You're about to see healthcare problems and challenges through a brand new lens and take your leadership to a whole new level with this podcast. We've coached healthcare leaders from across North America for over 30 years as they strive to establish healthy healing organizations and thriving work cultures. This is the only podcast that shows healthcare leaders how to apply polarity thinking, the missing logic in healthcare, to their reoccurring challenges so they can stop wasting time, money, and resources on fixes that fail. If you want to create a healthy healing organization where staff and leaders thrive and perform at their highest level, where values are aligned, outcomes are sustainable, and the highest quality of care is delivered, then this podcast is for you. Keep listening. Each week, you're going to learn how to leverage a polarity mindset and manage competing priorities as we use a polarity lens to explore everyday challenges with the leaders who are striving to manage them. We're thrilled you're here. Well, hello, everybody. This is Tracy. And Michelle. We just wrapped up another phenomenal interview. We're so lucky. We are. We really are. I mean, we have the opportunity to interview some phenomenal people, and this this was just a wonderful interview. Yeah, it really was. You know, it's we're sharing an experience that's very rare, and um, we've already benefited from it. We know you are too. Oh yes, definitely, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So we did a fantastic interview with Dr. Diana Hendel. Um, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about her, and then we're going to roll right into the interview, and you're not going to want to miss it. She's an experienced healthcare executive, inspirational leader, and team builder. Diana's achievements and accomplishments span a career of more than 25 years with experience and leadership at all levels of complex organization. As the former CEO of Long Beach Memorial and Miller Children's and Women's Hospital, Diana led one of the largest acute care trauma and teaching medical centers on the West Coast. She has held many key leadership roles in professional associations, including, including serving as chair of the California Children's Hospital Association, executive committee member of the Hospital Association of Southern California, and the vice chair of the Southern California Leadership Council. She's also served as chair of the Greater Long Beach Chamber of Commerce and as the leader in residence of the Euclea Center for Ethical Leadership at California State University, Long Beach. Diana currently serves as a senior partner with Partnership Advantage, a consulting firm that helps individuals and organizations achieve optimal performance for the betterment of the communities they serve. Her areas of expertise include strategic vision and business growth, 
creating effective decision-making structures, building and sustaining high-functioning, agile, and resilient teams, and leading organizations through trauma and fostering healthy and thriving cultures in their aftermath. Please join us in listening to Dr. Diana Hendel. Well, welcome, Diana. We are just thrilled to have you on the podcast today. Yes, it's so great to be with you again. Oh, thank you. Likewise, it is wonderful to be in your presence. Yeah. 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 And we met so many years ago, right? Been on a kind of we've been together, been apart, been together. <laughs> Here we are now virtually together, right? Yeah. It's yeah. been a great journey. Oh, it has been a wonderful journey and a great to be connected with you across the years. And um, we like to start with just a little fun banter and let our listeners kind of get to know you in a little different way. And um, so um, why don't you just tell our listeners what part of the country you live in and maybe one of your favorite passions or hobbies or something that you really enjoy doing? Okay, great. Well, I live in Southern California. I live in the heart of Orange County in the city of Orange, of all things. And my yard is uh, filled with lemon trees. So I, I just always thought it was funny to have be in, live in the city of Orange and have a kind of an orchard of lemon trees. But <laughs> it um, is. Yes. We're right next door to Disneyland, just a few miles away. Um, so that's, you know, where I live. And when I'm not working, I love being outside, walking and hiking. And I've recently begun playing pickleball. Um, so for now though, unfortunately, um, of course a little bit of limitation on that. I'm pretty much out in my own yard, um, outside and I get to hike some of the local trails. And then we've tried to figure out how to play pickleball in the garage, um, to (laughs) minimal success, but a lot of fun nonetheless. Well, I'm sure it's been fun trying. (laughs) (laughs) It is. There's some obstacles that we don't usually have on the outdoor court, but we've had a lot of fun with it. Yeah. Well, you're lucky, you know, you live in such a beautiful place, right? And you can be outside at any any time of the year. You're very lucky. (laughs) Yeah. Michelle's a little over the winter, right? She's ready for summer. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, how does it feel to publish a book? It it feels great. Um, (laughs) Although I enjoyed the process uh, and it was a labor of love, I'm just so pleased to be on this side of it. Writing the book was an almost three-year journey, and at times I came close to pitching it, to tossing it aside and just walking away from it, Um, sometimes because of voices of uh, Mm self-doubt I had, or even just weariness. Um, But it was a story that just was screaming to come out. It needed to be told, and it almost demanded to be told. And so the drive to write it became relentless, and so pleased to have it now out in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the last time we were together physically, yep. you were just getting started on you it. You were just starting it. Yeah. Yep. So we were so thrilled to see it be published. Yeah. When I got your email, it's out, it's done. We were like, yay, Diana. <laughs> yeah. And um, so thank you for seeing it through. And um, after reading it, we know it's going to be a gift to the world. Um and before we begin into the discussion about uh, your incredible book, um, let's talk a little bit about your unique career, because I do think you have a unique career of 
from a pharmacist to a CEO of one of the largest hospital complexes on the West Coast and holding key leadership roles in various California professional organizations. So can you give our listeners just a little cliff note on Dr. Diana Hendel and your journey? Well, sure. Well, I started um, as a pharmacy student, actually, at the organization that I ended up spending almost, well, a little more than 25 years of my life and career. Um, And when I joined the organization, I was eager. um, And Long Beach Memorial Miller Children's Hospital was um, what we considered Mecca or Nirvana with regard to clinical pharmacy practice. It was the place to practice on the West Coast. And so I was so excited to join the staff and I, I felt the sense of being home. And so for the next 20 years, I had this really strong sense of belonging to an organization that I believed deeply in its purpose and mission. Um, over the next, well, two decades, I had the opportunity to take on a variety of increasingly progressive and more challenging leadership roles, um, initially at the Long Beach and Miller Children's Campus, but then at each of the other hospitals and campuses within, within our system. And then I came full circle um, after serving as an administrator of a newly, newly acquired hospital in uh, South Orange County. I came full circle and came back to Long Beach Memorial as the CEO or COO um, in uh, 2006. Uh, so I was back home again and then was promoted to CEO of both Long Beach Memorial and Miller Children's Hospital, um, at which I served for then the next uh, six years as CEO. And so it was a calling um, I enjoyed both having a clinical background and an administration and a, a uh, management, uh, responsibilities. Um, the hospital is for all, all of you that know the inner workings of a hospital, they're fascinating, just mm-hmm. wonderful places. Um, they are wonderful places to devote your life and career to. So it was a really a privilege to be part of that. Yeah, yeah, we know what it's like to have a home. Yeah, yes. yeah, we do. Yeah. And we feel really uh, privileged that we've been to your home. You know, we've mm-hmm. we've been, we've met leaders, we've met clinicians, and it is a it is a very uh, unique place. And I can I just see it. I see the Long Beach Memorial Hospital and the Miller Children's right next to each other, right in my mind, like I was just there yesterday. You know, so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. I loved the idea that in um, healthcare. That opportunity to be for be there for people on the very best day of their life. So at any one moment, someone was having a baby and yes. the joy of bringing a baby into the world. But on that very same day, someone could be facing their most difficult day, uh, the passing of a loved one or themselves. And to be there at both of those extremes, to be there and bear witness to it, if you will, was such a privilege and an honor. And I never lost touch, nor did my colleagues ever lose touch of that extraordinary privilege and honor to be part of people's lives in that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's how we've always felt, too. It, we, we have. We have. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really an honor. Absolutely. Yeah. And we, you know, I don't know if you've heard our story, if we told you that we met at orientation, right, on the same, we oriented on the same day. Right. Yes. And, yes, uh, I do. Yeah. And had such a commitment to the yeah. organization that we were involved with same as you right just believed in the mission believed in the work that was happening there and so yeah. we know what it's like to carry a place like that in your heart and we still do yeah we're still connected yeah, it doesn't go away Mm-mm. it really Mm-mm. doesn't go away it is home right mm-hmm. there's no place like home <laughs> <laughs> as dorothy would say <laughs> yeah so um 
So when we first met you, we did some learning together and collaboration, and um, and you told us that you were writing this book. We didn't know the name of it at the time, but we did know that you know you had gone through an incredible journey as CEO um, through a traumatic event and crisis at the hospital that you were at. And out of that experience, this book was starting to kind of bubble up in you to to really come out. And um, so, what what motivated you to actually you know write a book about it? Well, I had a lot of reasons for writing it. Um, at its heart, this book is a tribute. It's a tribute to my colleagues who lost their lives at my workplace on April 16th, 2009. It's mm-hmm. also a tribute, tribute to my former coworkers, coworkers who I considered family. They're my work family. As we said, we were home. And yeah. coworkers who I continued to work alongside for six years after the trauma. In sharing the story, I highlight the impact of trauma on individuals and on the organization as a whole. Um, A lot has been written about how trauma affects individuals, but I discovered that very little had been published about how it affects the culture of an organization. Um, I also wrote it to raise awareness of PTSD. In the book, I come out as both a leader with PTSD and I share my experience as a vulnerable patient with PTSD. And I had thought I knew what it was like to be a patient. You know, I'd given birth to two wonderful babies in my own hospital. I'd um, got undergone minor surgeries. I'd helped others navigate through difficult um, situations and end-of-life situations in the hospital. Um, and as the CEO, I had served as a secret shopper. So I thought I wanted to stay in touch and empathic, empathetic to the patient's experience. But becoming a patient, being a patient with PTSD... Um, revealed the vulnerabilities of being a patient that I had never experienced, how vulnerable it can feel to be a patient. Um, And so I'm hopeful that in coming out personally that it helps to destigmatize PTSD and that it advances the conversation about some of the unique perspectives on PTSD. Um, The book also explores the word responsible. It's a simple word on the surface, but one with many meanings and complexities in its interpretation and in its application. Um, So I guess in summary of why I wrote the book, um, although I wrote it from my unique point of view, I wanted it to serve as a voice for many, Mm -hmm. certainly to offer hope and inspiration, certainly to people who've gone through trauma or know someone who has. And I guess now in the days of COVID, that's pretty much all of us. Yeah. Yeah. In yeah. varying degrees, right? It's a yes. it's a unique experience, I think, for each individual is what I'm taking away from all that. And it is very inspiring and your message is very clear. And um I'm I for one am grateful that you wrote it mm-hmm. because I have insights I would never have had without it. Mm-hmm. So thank mm-hmm. you for writing it. Um and I, you know, and I would encourage our listeners, um, to pick it up as well, because I think it's going to be very informative and very enlightening and inspirational for them. Um, And the name of the book is Responsible, a memoir. And so can you just, um, there's so much in this book. (laughs) It's kind of hard to say, tell us about the book. I know. (laughs) Um, So just, you know, um, share what you think is uh, the essence that you would like our listeners to kind of walk away with today? Kind of what's the essence of the memoir? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you just a little snippet of the story, just to kind of ground Mm -hmm. in the experience. Um, On April 16, 2009, 
a man came to the outpatient pharmacy, which was located in the lobby of our hospital, and he shot and killed the supervisor of the pharmacy. He then traveled through the halls of the hospital, and he exited the building where he then shot and killed another man before turning the gun on himself and killing himself. Now, that was horrific in and of itself, um, but what shocked us to the core was that the shooter was an employee. He was one of our, our own. He was someone who had been beloved in the organization. I was in the vicinity when the shooting happened, and as the CEO ended up responding to all three scenes, and I had known all three of these people. They were from my home department of pharmacy, and one in particular was a good friend. The event ended up being extraordinarily complicated for many of those reasons, and then when rumors about his motive surfaced, it made it uniquely difficult. So the book is about that event and all that transpired in the aftermath, um, an aftermath that I characterized as having a multi-year ripple effect. It had a wide reach and a ceaseless, incessant, mm -hmm. incessant, never-ending wake. Um, mm -hmm. So the essence of the book through that story and through sharing that story is my observations and discoveries and the lessons I learned as a leader, the things that we did really well as an organization, and also disclosing the mistakes that I and we made. Um, what I discovered that in studying this trauma and others that occur within organizations and communities, I found themes and patterns that I discuss in the book, mm -hmm. uh, primarily how blame and shame and guilt can infuse and permeate how an event that is too taboo to discuss can become unspeakable. And though it's unspoken and seemingly gone and over and in the past, it's not. Instead, it's ever-present. It lurks and it haunts for years and can become an urban legend. Wow. Yeah. So many, um, there's, there's just so much um, to unpack <laughs> in your mm -hmm. experience, right? And mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, one of the things that struck me um, in the book was your um, your connectedness to your coworkers on one, you know, on many levels, I think you said, right? You were so connected, deeply connected, and yet separated from them because of your role as a leader, because you were the CEO of the organization. And just this new appreciation um, for that, what it means to be lonely at the top. Can you just talk about that for a minute? Because I think we hear that all the time from leaders. It's lonely at the top. And I think your experience takes it to a whole nother level, yeah, right? Absolutely. But I think you gain insights about that. And mm -hmm. I think our leaders would, or our listeners would benefit from hearing something about that, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. You know, um, I'd always thought that if a leader felt lonely at the top, it was because um, they didn't connect. Um, so I had a bias that um, to not be lonely, lonely at, the, at the top was to connect. And I learned, um, I wouldn't say really the hard way, but I learned in a deeply profound way that you could be very lonely at the top and be connected. Mm -hmm. And that in those moments of trauma and crisis, in those moments, there is a need for someone to what I called stand in, to someone to take charge, to be the focal point, to be the lightning rod, to be the person who directed and guided the organization forward. And by its very, and, and who also soothed and 
and uh, comforted people who were hurting. So what I discovered that while I was extraordinarily connected to people who I considered part of my family, who I'd known for by then, you know, more than 20 years, who I'd grown up with, that I could in plain sight be extraordinarily and profoundly isolated. And it's ultimately what led to me leaving is that sense of isolation and the need to recover and repair. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, I think it's such an important um, topic because I think there are ways for leaders to minimize the feeling of loneliness, loneliness at the top, but I think it's also reality that it can be lonely at the top and especially in terms of, in times of crisis. So Mm -hmm. I think it's important right now that we're uh, especially attuned to people in leadership roles um, and even if they appear strong, even if they appear in, char- in charge, those things can be true and they can be isolated or lonely. Yeah. And it's yeah. a different kind of trauma, right, happening right now, obviously. But, you know, that's like everybody is concerned, of course, uh, for the essential workers on the front line who are, you know, just... It's like being in a war zone in some ways, right? And so we know that they're going to face a lot of trauma. Many of them will be traumatized by Mm -hmm. their experience. They're already talking about the trauma they're experiencing. And, of course, everybody's extremely concerned. Um, But we're all, you know, Michelle and I right along have been concerned about the leaders because the leaders are holding the clinicians up, right? And they're making really, really hard decisions, And those decisions are going to have an impact, right? And that same kind of loneliness, that isolation and yet connectedness, I can just see that, you know, I was thinking a lot of that as I was reading your book um, and from your experience and thinking how it's so parallel, right, to what they may be at risk for. So It's such an important thing that you're surfacing, Um, Tracy. I'm so glad you're raising this because it... um, highlights a very unique need when um, people, organizations, communities, and in terms of COVID, when large groups of collectives are traumatized, the need to be also focused on the impact on leaders um, Mm -hmm. in this unique way. Really important. Yeah. 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 Are there there a few other lessons or highlights that you'd like to share with our listeners Mm -hmm. from the book? Great. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, well, certainly experiencing the trauma and, and the things that happened in the aftermath, they changed me as a leader. Um, what I learned that was, was that more than ever, when tra- trauma occurs within, orga- within an organization, um, that a different kind of leadership is needed. Um, it changed how we communicated. It changed how we listened. It changed how we made decisions going forward. It changed also what we focused on. Um, Strangely or paradoxically, the things that might have bothered me in the past, you know, some financial hardships or, you know, a a bad month or a bad um, comment or some other, you know, misstep might have really thrown me for a loop. And in the future, in, in a way, I became almost fearless to that because I'd already gone through the worst thing. And so mm-hmm. everything else paled in comparison. And so in a way, it, it liberated me from some of the everyday business stresses. And, um, you know, I think the other and really key thing that I learned was that division and isolation will not lead to healing. Um, I can't control the outcome or guarantee unity, 
but I can do everything possible as a leader to foster and support the condition uh, for unity. So can you share the personal significance of the I got this in your story, your decade story? Sure. Yeah, I've got this was a phrase that I uttered on my hundredth day um, of being CEO, um, which happened to also be the same day as the shooting. And earlier in the morning, as I was coming to work, I was thinking, boy, it's my hundredth day. And of course, I'd written a hundred day plan. So I was celebrating my hundredth day. And I was thinking, gosh, I had been nervous about this role, of course, understandably, and in awe of it. Um, But in that moment, while I knew there would be you know, a lot of challenges and a lot of growth and a lot that I had to learn. I just had this sense of, I've got this. Um, And interestingly, you know, a decade later, as I fully recovered and completely healed, um, I was reflecting on that on the anniversary day, 10 years later. And I looked back and thought, I've got this. And I said those same three words. And so um, it was completion, closure, um, you know, bookends from beginning to end. So that's the significance of that phrase. Yeah. Yeah. So powerful. Of course, you don't know that when you start reading it, but when you get to the end, it's like, that is so awesome coming Mm -hmm. full circle like that. Yeah. 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 Well, as you know, we've been, um, really focusing our efforts on supporting healthcare leaders and helping them to live more balanced and resilient lives. And, um, and we're really, we've combined kind of a unique set of strategies that we've been using over the last 30 years to keep us resilient and balanced and strong uh, as leaders. And um, one of those um, pillars is managing tensions or leveraging polarities, right? And uh, which we know you're very familiar with. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, you know, as we had said before, we're really concerned about this crisis and the burnout and um, really the potential for PTSD for clinicians and leaders. Mm -hmm. And um, so we were just, um, you know, really wondering what your thoughts are. And um, before we move into that, um, just wondering if you would share with the listeners um, your perspective around PTSD, because as you've mentioned, right, there's um, there's a lot of misperception mm-hmm. about it. And we thought it'd be really mm-hmm. helpful it for would you be to very just helpful. share your thoughts uh, about yeah. it before we ask you any other questions yeah. around it. Yeah, what I did find with PTSD is it is highly stigmatized. Um, it, there is a sense um, that people develop PTSD because they're weak, because they're not strong enough, because they haven't done a good job coping And I do think coping is really important, but coping, sometimes people can implement a lot of good coping mechanisms and it can look as though they're healed. Um, And in fact, we kind of look to the negative coping signs as evidence that they haven't healed. But with PTSD, um, coping, you know, is important, but it's the processing of the trauma that results in both healing from PTSD and or preventing getting it. So it's the processing. Um, And certainly positive coping mechanisms augment um, without a doubt, but processing is critically important. Um, What I found is that um, in my research around PTSD, and of course I did an awful lot of research, I don't know that there aren't very many studies or 
articles or books about PTSD that I haven't read or consumed or, you know, absolutely digested. But <laughs> I found that a lot of the focus is looking at individuals. Um, so for example, you know, it's generally accepted that about 20% of people who experience trauma develop PTSD. And that's really from a small study, but in general, that's, you know, what we, mm-hmm. um, are left with. And so the natural question is, well, why do some people get PTSD and others don't? And so then we start to look at the characteristics of the individual. We look at, did they have adverse child events, that mental illness, what was their baseline mindset? Um, what was their coping ability? You know, what was their support structure? Uh, and all those things are really important. Um, but as the research is evolving, it's then also looking at were there delays in care because of access to healthcare or access to psychotherapy um, or because of the stigma. You know, a lot of people, you know, and certainly healthcare professionals, they say, I'm fine. Um, but then even beyond that, and where I um, really poke and prod in the book is to introduce that it's also important in addition, so it's a both and, mm-hmm. is looking at the elements and characteristics of the trauma itself. So traumas, because not all traumas are the same, of course, and not everyone experiences the trauma in the same way. Um, so it's important to look at the severity of the trauma, the suddenness of it happening, if it was human-caused. Um, if it happened in a location that had previously been considered ultra safe or even sacred. So hospitals, um, churches, schools, Mm -hmm. previously considered ultra safe, sacred. Mm -hmm. Um, It's important to also look at the nature of the trauma with the relationship of the people involved, the relationship of of people with the victims and with the perpetrator. Um, And if there's any sense of a moral injury, if the motive is related to a, a, a moral or a value judgment. So I think looking in, and um, I offer those insights in the book to advance the conversation and hopefully to help us perhaps as we do more study for us to do a better job at predicting who might be most at risk. So, you know, circling back to our comment about leaders and being lonely at the top, there's a lot of advice about what leaders should do so that others are cared for. But we also need to be really attuned to um, helping those leaders um, and so I, I, I advanced that um, uh, as you know, an important element in the book, and I hope that more study is done around the nature of trauma itself, um, because that, that need to both process it cognitively and somatically is really so important. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, just such lessons from your own experience around that. And um, you know, we've been, even before the COVID crisis, Tracy and I have talked about even burnout the focus being on clinicians and who's mm-hmm. talking about the leader. And then, then your, le- your learnings from trauma, you know, being strong to take care of people going through trauma. So there's really a big lesson here in front of us about, you know, how the leader needs to care for the leader for the leader, right? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Right. And if you're yes. already depleted. Yeah. We were just yes. talking about this earlier today. If you're already depleted body, mind, and spirit, right, then your chance of really moving through this in a healthy way is going to be less. And then you're trying to help others and the weight of that, right, is just going to keep pulling you down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, very much so. And I offer up often that we, we often think of trauma as being sort of the end of the spectrum of 
um, seriousness of adversity or hardship or difficulty. And I offer up that trauma is on a whole different plane, that it's not just an extension of hardship or adversity. It's something that has a biological response that elicits fight, flight, Mm -hmm. freeze. Yep. Automatically. It's a biological, neurobiological response uh, for good reason. And so thinking of it on as a, as a different plane, I think will help us to address it um, better in how we um, face it, in how we help others address it, not just to, um, not just to simply tell ourselves to become more resilient, you know, that we need to develop other tools to supplement and to aid in, for those who have been traumatized. Yeah. Dana, have you, done uh, much reflection on the healthcare leaders out there in some of these COVID hotspots that um, are seeing colleagues pass away, um, having to be in the hot seat, making decisions at what Tracy and I and talking to some of constant change. It's just like relentless change. Mm-hmm. What are, what's some of your reflection as you think about those healthcare leaders out there dealing with some of the pandemic issues right now? Yes, I... I am really quite concerned because um, healthcare workers, as you mentioned, they're at the epicenter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in addition, I mean, for all of us and for, for everyone, um, COVID is a trauma. It's more than a crisis. It has longevity and it is and will be chronic. Um, and sometimes we think of trauma as a single event, um, but in this case, it's an ongoing, it's a chronic event. And it has a wide range of impact. So it traumatizes us in different ways and in different degrees. So it's not one size fits all. Mm-hmm. I mean, some in the larger um, community will contract it and die. Some will lose loved ones. Some will lose their jobs. Some will lose their businesses. So, And some people won't have any of those things happen, but they'll lose their previous feelings of freedom to travel and to engage with others. So in all... in for all of us, some part of, of the previous has been shattered in different ways and different degrees. Um, so for really almost everyone, COVID has and will continue to disrupt our lives. And that, by very nature, is one of the definitions of, of trauma. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, you know, I'm certainly worried at, for the whole about the impact on lost, re- lost revenues and upcoming furloughs and layoffs. They seem almost inevitable. And there are lots of ways that organizations are are traumatized. They're traumatized when someone dies or there's financial ruin. And, uh, but they're also traumatized with layoffs. And for a long time, I've thought that layoffs or the very threat of them um, are and have been traumatic to organizations and the people within them. Um, even if we become immune to them or seeing them as, as traumatic, um, even if they become normalized, um, they, they are traumatic to workplaces. So then to circle back for healthcare folks, they have all those considerations and being at the epicenter. So they themselves caring for people who they are watching, uh, watching pass away. And even though healthcare workers are accustomed to um, death, uh, not on this scale, not in this way, and not with something that is still has such a high degree of uncertainty about it. So the virus itself still, we have so much uncertainty about it. Mm-hmm. There's still so much we don't know about it. Um, and there's uncertainty about having enough supplies, enough PPE. 
So that degree um, of uncertainty within a healthcare environment um, it does make me very concerned for uh, healthcare workers. Um, you know, I, I, well, and then let's add that many of us have talked about that um, healthcare professionals and workers then going home and worrying about are they infecting yeah. their family members yeah. or are they separated from their family members to protect them. Um, yeah. Yeah. So certainly healthcare workers are at the epicenter and at, at a high risk. Um, mm-hmm. And we all as healthcare workers are known to be very stiff upper lip, uh, very resilient, very tough people. And so it can be hard to admit that we need help. Um, mm-hmm. And again, the stigma of PTSD may not be stronger than any place other than a hospital. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, we just were um, became aware of a hotline that was opened for physicians. Um, and like 600 psychologists or psychiatrists are manning this hotline, right, from across the country. But um, one of the physicians said, you know, I... I really struggled asking for help because I'm supposed to be a hero now, right? So now we're, we're telling them all they're heroes and that's having, you know, an impact on them. So if I ask for help, does that mean I'm a coward? Does that mean I'm weak, right? So even the good intentions that we have to honor and to, you know, hail what they're mm-hmm. doing and to recognize them um, can have unintended consequences for, for some individuals, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And our ability to reframe and to uh, frame it as a both and. Yeah. The mm-hmm. people on the front lines, they are heroes and they can be hurting at the same time. Yes. Right. And that reframing um, is so very important and moving away from this notion that if we're strong and heroes, then we have to say we're fine. Yeah. Or we have to be fine. It both can be, both are in existence. Sure. Um, and in fact, that keeps us and puts us so much more in touch with our humanity because that's authentic. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would you have any um, words of advice or recommendations for some of the leaders out there that are, you know, that are starting to struggle? Um, you know, they, they, they have that inner knowing they could be getting into trouble and just maybe tying it back to your own personal experience of timing to reach out or any words of advice? Yes, definitely get help. Talk about it. Yeah. Frame it as a both and. They are heroes and they can be hurting. Mm-hmm. Stay unified. Mm-hmm. Don't become isolated. Look for evidence of isolation in others. And one of, I think, the, the two words I think that sometimes as evidence of isolation is the words, I'm fine in response to how are you? I think we use that so euphemistically. And I think that can be a signal to ask more questions, dig deep. Um, I think don't equate evidence of good, uh, or uh, don't equate um, observations of good coping by someone as evidence that they aren't suffering traumatic stress. Um, they can be coping and they can still be under enormous yeah. stress that can lead to PTSD, even if they're implementing really good coping mechanisms. Yeah. Um, you know, I often think that even the strongest ceramic vase that if dropped maybe from the counter would bounce off the floor. 
it will shatter if it's dropped from a six-story building. Mm-hmm. So um, it's the trauma, it's the stress, it's the circumstances that are important to look at and mm-hmm. not be then looking to say, is this base strong enough? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And again, at both end, there's many measures to ensure that coping mechanisms are implemented and that we're circling around one another and being there for one another. Um, and so with healthcare workers, I'm not saying everyone's going to de- develop PTSD, if, but I am saying it wouldn't surprise me if many do. Um, and not because a person who develop, de- develops it isn't resilient or strong or practicing good coping. Um, but they each have a unique experience in this. And we don't know what they've seen. We don't know what they've experienced. We may think we do, but we don't. Um, I think the other thing that I'm hopeful for, and I do see, and I know many of us have commented on, is that we're all looking and seeing tremendous amount of growth in parallel. You know, trauma has a flip side um, in being... um, a catalyst for growth that couldn't otherwise happen um, and can exist in, in parallel to the pain and stress. Um, and it's particularly strong in healthcare. It's a time where people are horrified by what they're seeing, but they're also experiencing this great camaraderie and bonding, mm-hmm. you know, that collective shared sense of belonging to something that's so much bigger than ourselves and doing work that is so clearly connected to, to deep meaning and purpose. And so both those things in parallel um, exist. And so looking for those, celebrating those, overtly talking about them um, is so mm-hmm. important. And so I've been, um, it, it, it's, I've been touched to see evidence of that. Yeah. Um, well, I think the other thing that Tracy and I have really noted too is just um, the walls coming down of things we've wanted for a long time, but there's always been barriers like telehealth and new ways of doing things that really patients want. They, they want these things, but we've been so stuck in the way we've done things for so long that it is gonna, it's going to change so many things. Well, yes. and new partnerships, right? New, yep. the breaking down yes. of barriers between organizations and, yep. you know, uh, the, the both end of collaboration and competition. Yep. And I think, you know, with what healthcare is going through, the healthcare system is going through is going to really... It's going to have to um, embrace more collaboration and more cooperation in a lot of different ways. And I think they're well on the road with that. Um, and so that's been really, yeah. you know, exciting to see as well. So I agree. There's so much innovation um, and possibility yeah. if, if you look for it, right? You have to be open, be open. and ready for that. And um, and in some cases, you have no choice. <laughs> like, you just got to go down that road, right? But mm-hmm. I, I just before we move on, um, I... I wanted to just comment on something because you brought up to like, you know, this whole thing is trauma and there's a lot of different experiences of it. And so we've been talking about the clinicians at the point of care, but also the trauma of not being able to be with your family, the trauma Mm -hmm. of maybe the husband's lost their job, the trauma of, so there can be layers of trauma happening here in a lot of different ways. And and it made me think about um, your story in the book and all the different events that happened to you in your organization, Diana, after the event, mm-hmm. 
all of those little traumas in and of themselves, right? All the threats to the clinicians, the organization. The, and I was just like, I had no idea, you know, those things were happening. And, and we know we're living in a much more violent world right now, right? Where this was kind of the beginning. Your event was, had, you know, it hadn't really happened. We hadn't had mass shootings or any kind of traumas like that to the extent that we have them now, unfortunately. Um, but I just, I didn't know if you had any comments about that because I was kind of really surprised by how frequently those kinds of things were happening. And I don't know what you know about what's happening in other organizations. I mean, we know there've been a lot around keeping staff safe, that there's been kind of incidences like that. But just any thoughts about, the amount of those kinds of events happening with threats and, and well, I will s certainly say that uh, with regard to active shooters, of course, that term was just beginning to bubble. We didn't actually have the any protocols for active shooter, and in fact, the ones that were written in the following year, we wrote them um, because based on our experience and how we um, married the Hicks process with active shooter. Um, so it was very new. What I would say is that in a way that when that happened, uh, it moved from kind of unimaginable and hypothetical at best to it happening. So the genie was out of the bottle and it was something that couldn't then get put back in the bottle. So the threats and the near misses and the events that happened later, fortunately, nothing ended up happening with serious consequence, but how we viewed them or how we had to view them, of course, was through the lens of the trauma that did happen. So we couldn't tell ourselves, well, that's, you know, that, that's a threat and, you know, it's a little alarming, but that'll never happen. We, we no longer had innocence. We, we couldn't operate with innocence. So it was hard for me to know whether those threats actually increased or whether our attention to them and our focus on them, of course, and how triggering they were to us um, dramatically increased. Um, I did, you know, certainly then study it later, and it was both true. The number of threats did and have increased, um, not, not certainly in our organization, but across the world. Um, and I think it's the advent of social media. It's mm -hmm. the advent of more dense population, um, a whole bunch of factors that I, that I talk about in the book. Um, but I think what I would say is that once an event has happened, how you view the world, it's impossible to not view it through that lens and both in good ways and in ways that are, you know, re-triggering. Yeah. Yeah. And so it just yeah. triggers you again. It's makes it difficult to move beyond and yeah. and heal right and repair because it yeah. it's like a wound you keep ripping open every time something happens and I'm thinking about all these people that they're not only experiencing what's happening in their hospital and caring for patients but right they've got traumas happening at home with their families and their kids and like it's just this constant you know barrage yeah. and uh, yeah and just thinking and about the impact of that and it, it it could be so much more than we're even thinking it might be. And that's why we're just so well, intent on 
getting, you know, doing whatever we can for the healthcare leader. Right, um, right. Because a lot of this sits on their shoulders, you know, uh, and it's going to get harder. It's not going to get easier. I think it's going to get harder, a lot harder. Yeah, and it goes back to what you say in the book too, Diana. I love you. You don't know what you don't know. And we're sitting in that spot right now at a macro level. We don't know what we don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And yeah, um, yeah we're, we're um, in new territory. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, I think there's, there's so much um, in your book to be for people to draw from. So it's a gift that, and it's just timely that it's there right now. Like nothing happens by coincidence. We believe it's all meant to be. And, and I think your book is a part of that. So thank you again for yeah, writing thank it you. and sharing it. And um, tell our, um, tell our listeners a little bit about what you're focused on now, kind of who's Diana 2020 <laughs> yeah. well, other than uh, staying at home. <laughs> yes. Um, well, I joined, joined a small consulting firm a couple of years ago and my business partner and I do a lot of individual leadership coaching and team and leadership development. Um, but a significant part of our practice over the last couple of years has grown and particularly working with organizations that have been traumatized. What I found, and I think as I alluded to earlier, that there's a lot of work and a lot of help for individuals who've been traumatized, but this concept that an organization itself is traumatized and the impact of the culture. Um, and so uh, increasingly, I've been brought in to consult and advise and help leaders and their teams navigate trauma when it happens in an organization. And it can be violent trauma, but it can also be other kinds of trauma that I've mentioned, like mm -hmm. sexual harassment or assault, particularly if it's an insider, um, you know, death of the leader, um, death of a beloved uh, co-worker, um, you know, losing half the business and an enormous layoff. Um, those are tra traumatic to an organization. So increasingly, I'm working with organizations and helping them navigate um, and taking certainly the experience I've had over the past now 30 years as a healthcare leader, but also that distinct six-year period where I navigated um, and learned many lessons about how best to lead through trauma and learned many of the, identified many of the mistakes we made. Yeah. Um, so hopefully others can learn um, through and with us. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm glad that yeah. they have you, right? And uh you're such a gift to all of us, really. So um, what gives you the greatest hope right now uh, for the healthcare leaders of tomorrow? You know, it is coming back to that, um, that camaraderie, that higher purpose, that sense of belonging, that sense of being united, um, being in touch with what makes us best as humans and our ability to turn and look and talk about that and embrace one another. That gives me the most hope that by being in touch with those elements, there isn't anything that we won't be able to go through. And the key will be going through it together. Mm -hmm. And so I have great hope. Um, it will be difficult and it has been difficult. Um, but healthcare leaders and people in this nation are extraordinarily resilient and capable and agile. And I have great hope for the future. Yeah. Right. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, we, we've been saying that we kind of look at this whole experience 
um, that we're going through as a nation, well, as a world, really, globally, is a reset, right? And if you've seen anything, it has been sparking the humanity again, right? It's like, yeah. come on, people, get back to your, hu- your, your human element here. You, and that whole connection and being in it together is something that we're observing, and that is very hopeful. Yeah, it is. Well, don't you think it is interesting that, I mean, how many stories are we hearing that here we are in our homes or, um, and isolated in a way and yep. yet more connected than ever. I know I mean, people I've reached out to that I haven't seen otherwise people I've gotten closer to because of this. So it is the both hand. Yeah, I mean, it really does. It, it does include the both hand. Yeah, it does. It does. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to go through yet. Right. Yeah. But um, at the same time, it, it is a very hopeful time for those things that we weren't managing well, the tensions we weren't managing well before we came into this. And hopefully this is an opportunity to look through a different lens, right? And to come out of this on the other side of it much better and more connected and um, just, you know, more able to handle what's going to come in the future. That's our hope. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, it's just been such a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. And yeah, we just encourage everyone to read your book. And we look forward to doing more work with you in the future. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful to see both of you, too. Yeah, you too. You too. Stay safe and healthy. Yep. Okay. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks as always for listening to Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast. We'd love to hear and answer your questions. If you have questions, you can email us at questions at missinglogic.com and we may include your question in a future episode. You can find show notes and links at our website, www.missinglogic.com forward slash podcast. If you're the kind of leader who wants to help others, then share this podcast with your peers and other healthcare leaders. We're certain if you found value in it, they will too. Please share this on your social media channels and leave us a review in iTunes. If you don't know how to leave a review, you can find instructions on our website at www.missinglogic.com forward slash podcast.